Good morning to our Victory City family. So grateful for you to be back with us again this week. So grateful to be able to join back here and um, jump into the Word of God. Um, This has been a a really, really phenomenal week. We have just seen the grace of God. I know I have in my own life, and I pray that you have seen the evidence of God's grace in your own life as well. Um, As we are moving through Acts, we are forced to deal with a lot of um, weighty issues and weighty topics that we have um, probably had some general understanding about in the Bible before. But what I want to do today is really, really dig deeply into some of the traditions, some of the teachings that many of us have been accustomed to hearing and, and taught and made aware of and hopeful, hopeful in my heart and mind that we will be able to provide for you real true clarity and understanding and maybe bring to light some things that you may not have been aware of before. Now, the title of the sermon today is The Miseducation of the Church on Tongues. And that is not a sarcastic title, that is not a title of arrogance, but it really is, um, you know, looking at the, the course of church history and some things that have happened within the last 110 years or so, um, just really seeing some of the teachings that have dramatically affected what church looks like for many people in many denominations and reformations, and just kind of saying there has been a slow trickle throughout the course of the last 110 years or so, um, really a diversion away from sound biblical teaching in regards to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and the doctrine of of spiritual gifts. And so what I want to do today is just bring some real true clarity in regards to what happens when we are saved, when we are filled with the Holy Spirit, what that means and what the implications are for us. So this will be a very um, different kind of feel to this sermon, Um, but that's just so we can unpack all these different things that have been taught, and we want to do so with grace, we want to do so with mercy, we want to do so with love, so that if there are people who may have been subject to some of these teachings, that they will be able to hear with, with love and grace as well. And so, before we do anything, we really have to answer the question, you know, how did we get here? How did we get here? Like I said, we have all, in some fashion, way or another, experienced the Pentecostal and charismatic movement that teaches on speaking in tongues. And Before we begin, again, please let me preface this by saying we have many members of of this local church, Victory City of Birmingham, that that come from varying backgrounds and have different experiences. And what we want to do is be sensitive to everyone. We want to say what we say today in a way that people do have an opportunity to grow, to think, and to reason through what they believe. So more than this sermon being just a condemnation of the Pentecostal and charismatic movement, it is really in defense of what I think the Bible has shown us that it is taught all along. So how did we get here? That's the question. 
How did we get it? In 1906, there was a man by the name of William J. Seymour who was a pastor, and he led a revival, a famous revival known as the Azusa Street Revival, which happened, obviously, on Azusa Street. And that revival lasted from 1906 until 1915. Prior to this, he had actually been rather infamous for his teaching about the Holy Spirit, that, and it was largely rejected by local pastors. And that teaching was that there was a latter baptism in the Holy Spirit that would come to all of us who seek it out. Now, the most essential part of Seymour's teaching was that speaking in tongues was the experiential evidence of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That means that the evidence that you have been saved and, and I'm making that distinction for a reason, that you've been saved and filled with the Holy Spirit was that you spoke in tongues. But there was one major issue with Seymour's theology, and other local pastors took issue with that as well. The big issue is that he always failed to display the very thing he preached about. So the evidence of the Holy Spirit, of which was he, as he said, speaking in tongues, he never displayed that at any of his churches. In fact, while he was in Houston, while preaching about the Holy Spirit and the gift of tongues being the evidence of the Holy Spirit, once he returned to that church the next door, the next night, they had padlocked the door because he was unable to display for them the evidence of the Holy Spirit that he had been preaching about. But what ended up happening is there were a few people in the congregation who liked his teaching and invited, them, invited him in their home where he began to preach more and more about the gifts of the Spirit, namely speaking in tongues. On April 6, 1906, after five weeks in a, in a revival, one man claimed to have spoken in tongues after praying and a 10-day-long fast. Now, Seymour shared that man's testimony and preached on Acts 2 and 4, which we're going to hit today. And when he spoke about it, they claimed that six more people spoke in tongues. And six days after that, Seymour himself finally displayed the evidence that he had been talking about. From this one man, there was birthed an entire belief system known as either the charismatic movement or Pentecostalism. Today, we want to look at scripture and look at the many missteps that William J. Seymour made to come to his conclusion. So in order to do this, we are jumping right back into our next set of scriptures, which is going to be Acts 2 and 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered. Because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear, each of us, 
in his own native language. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the word. God, we ask you to give us clarity, to give us humility, to give us grace, and to give us mercy. God, to open our spiritual eyes, open our spiritual ears so that we can receive what the word of God has been telling us the whole time. That is what we ask in your name. Amen. So in our first point today, which happens to be the only point for today's sermon, it is dispelling the myth. I want you all to see something here, and I want you to see it with great clarity. From the formation of the New Testament church until 1906, there was no clear evidence of anyone speaking in tongues, nor was there any evidence that there was teaching that speaking in tongues was normative to the Christian salvation experience. In fact, we don't see it again until after Acts when Paul addressed it in 1 Corinthians, which we're going to actually get into a little bit later in detail. How is it that if speaking in tongues is in fact a gift of the Spirit, or as some say, the evidence of the Holy Spirit, that we went almost 2,000 years with him being inoperable in this way? If this is the case, how did Seymour so grossly misinterpret this scripture? Before I say that, let me say this. Seymour falls in a familiar category that many preachers fall when they're making their best attempts at interpreting the text. I by no means think that this was an intentional misinterpretation on the part of Seymour, but I think that he fell victim to a bad translation and a lack of education. Let's understand our context here. Pentecost for the New Testament Christian is what Passover was for the Old Testament Jews. If we understand that Passover was a one-time unrepeatable event that demonstrated the goodness of God, the Jews who also understood this did not try to go around and recreate the Passover because they knew that that was what God did for those specific people in that specific time. Even when they gathered and celebrated Passover, it was not so that God would do what he had done before in that one-time event. It was to celebrate the fact that God had done that in the first place. The main thing that we have to emphasize here is that the language that we have must be understood in its original context. And until 1906, everybody understood this about the Bible and did not try to recreate what had happened at Pentecost. When Luke writes, divided tongues appeared as of fire, he is not trying to overemphasize the experiential evidence here, but rather he's trying to explain what they all saw. He says that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This is where many people have gotten very thrown off. They have combined these two different experiences as one continuous event that completes the salvation process. But that cannot be the case here. 
And it cannot be the case that we are told this in order to recreate it over and over again every time we gather in church. But that isn't even the case in the Bible. Let's look at a few occasions where people are saved in the book of Acts, but there is no evidence of them speaking in tongues. Acts 4.4. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. Acts 8 and 12, but when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized both men and women. Acts eleven twenty one, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number of them who believed turned to the Lord. Acts 13 and 12, then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord, Acts 14 and 1. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of them, both Jews and Greeks, believed. Here we have that there are five different occasions and even more where people are saved in Acts after the coming of the Holy Spirit and not a single instance of speaking in tongues occurs. If tongues are the evidence or the validation of salvation, then wouldn't they be mentioned here? Of course they would, but they are noticeably absent. Now, some of you may have wheels turning, and are there other occasions where people believed and spoke in tongues? Yes, and of course I have the perfect example of those in Scripture, but we also have the explanation of why those happen as well. In Acts 10, in Acts 19, and possibly, though it's not mentioned, in Acts 8. In Acts 10, there is a distinct difference in who is present in that scripture than who is present in Acts 2. In Acts 2, these are all Jews who have come from all different nations of all different tongues and languages who all descended in one place to celebrate Pentecost. Now, the likely cases that they had heard and responded to the teaching of John the Baptist, which was teaching of a baptism of repentance. While you remember, Jesus taught them of a baptism in the Holy Spirit that was coming after he left. Remember, he says, the comforter will come, but unless I go, he will not come. So he spoke about a baptism in the Holy Spirit by which we would see the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in all of us. These men would have been greatly anticipating having heard the teaching of Jesus, the coming of Holy Spirit. Now, that is who received, but, that is, but this had not happened for the Gentiles yet. This was exclusively an event that had been reserved for those Jews that descended that day in Pentecost. And they spoke in tongues as the evidence that the apostles were indeed one sent from God and that the Holy Spirit had come. Now, in Acts 10, these are not our devout Jews, but these are Gentiles. Now, these Gentiles had yet received the teaching of John nor understood the teaching of Jesus. So in this moment, in the same way that Holy Spirit descended on those Jews at their Pentecost, then the 
Bible shows us that Holy Spirit descended on the Gentiles as well. So you have two massive groups of people. You have the Jews who received the Holy Spirit, who displayed the evidence of the apostles' work and the evidence in that time that the coordination of the Holy Spirit had happened by speaking in tongues. In that event, you have that same event being replicated for the Gentiles here. And then the next time that we see it happen, the Bible says in Acts 19 that these were Jews who were not present at Pentecost. And when they're asked about had they heard about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, they said that they had only heard about John's baptism. So there was still a collection of Jews who had yet received the Holy Spirit because they had missed the Pentecost. And in that event, they did speak in tongues. Now, this again was the confirmation that the apostles were indeed sent by God. Nowhere in the teaching of Jesus, Paul, Peter, Luke, Stephen, Philip, James, or John, is there anything that says that this is normative to the Christian salvation experience? You will find that nowhere in Scripture. You will never see that if you are a Christian, you must speak in other tongues. You will never see that as a prescription to your saving faith. It merely describes the events that happen in the Bible. So let's just clear it up because I know you're probably wondering, well, if that's the case, what are tongues? What were tongues? So let me tell you what they weren't first. Tongues were not this unintelligible, incomprehensible language that could not be understood. It has never been that. It has never been that even in Scripture. How do I know that it wasn't? Because the Bible tells us this in the very text that we see. The word that is used here for tongues is the word glossa, where we get our word glossary, which literally means in the Greek, languages. That is literally what it means. So when we read, the best way to read it is that they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke in other languages. How do we know this for sure? You got to reread the text. And this is what happens. A lot of times we have read it but missed it. But I want you to hear it here. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered. Why were they bewildered? Because they couldn't understand each other? No, they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. How have we over the course of a hundred plus years missed that this so clearly says in the text that though there, these were other languages being spoken, every man heard it in his own natural tongue. This means that even if tongues were a part of the normative Christian salvation experience, every Christian even still would not babble incoherently but they would speak another language that they had not yet learned. In fact, Paul condemns the very act of speaking in incoherent babble. 
Let's look at 1 Corinthians 14, just so you know I'm not making it up. Now, brothers, 1 Corinthians 14 and 6, if I had come to you speaking in tongues, in languages, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will, who will get ready for the battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. 1 Corinthians 14, 14. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is what? Unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? Last one in 1 Corinthians 14. If therefore... The whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter. Will they not say that you are out of your minds? If you have an issue with this, take it up with Paul. Don't take it up with Brandon because I am reading from the biblical text. Paul here, who many have erroneously associated with the teaching of tongues, actually says here, do not do the very thing that many people are attempting to do. In fact, he goes so far to say that if you are making this a habit, then you are not even doing this with your mind. And the big problem is, is that many people find themselves overcome by some spiritual experience that they lose all sense of their rationality. Paul says, if you are praying with your spirit in a way that it makes you lose your mind, it is unfruitful. That is the direct correlation that he was making with people who were babbling incoherently when they were gathering together in the Corinthian church. Now, he does not say that they are not Christians. Let me make that distinction clear. But he does say later on that they need to come up to the more weighty things in their theology, in their doctrine. And this is light. Don't waste time over something so minuscule. We have weightier things in our doctrine that we have to attend to. When, when you do anything in the spirit, we have to do it with both our mind and our spirit engaged. You can't be so spiritual that your mind disengages from what you are doing. And that's what Paul is saying. You cannot divorce these things. You cannot separate these things. So he says that speaking unintelligible language is unproductive, it is counterintuitive, it is empty, and it is confusing for people who do not believe. In other words, Paul said this, do not do it. That is literally what he's saying here. The miraculous thing that people have missed is that when they all spoke, it came in a language that they had not yet learned. And that was to the glory of God because each person who heard, regardless of their language, heard it in their own language. 
This was the confirmation that the Holy Spirit was indeed sent by Jesus through his apostles. But when Holy Spirit came, there was no need to recreate this with every single conversion experience. Even now, there are people who believe that though they are saved, this is why I made that distinction earlier, though they are saved, they are not filled with the Spirit because they're waiting on the Holy Spirit to come fill them and speak in tongues. And we are robbing them of the joy and the assurance of knowing that they have been filled with the Holy Spirit in the moment that their salvation takes place. What happens here is that so many people have this idea of what salvation is and basically it has become this thing that they hold on to because there isn't the indwelling of the Holy Spirit because they haven't displayed the evidence that we said they should display, not the Bible says they should display. This is something else that Seymour got wrong and he passed it down all throughout charismatic Pentecostal church history. He and his followers waited, fasted, and prayed until they got the Holy Spirit's attention and they were filled. This began the trend, and we've probably heard this term, this term, tarrying. When you tarry for the Holy Spirit, which is what people would do, they would pray and labor and wait and cry and emote until zap. The Holy Spirit was pleased to enter them, but this isn't what happened in any of the experiences in the Bible. In fact, the Bible says that when they were on one accord, when they had all come together because of the sovereignty and work of God, then they were filled with the Holy Spirit. It was nothing that God required of them to fill them. If the Holy Spirit, if salvation is God's sovereign work, then there's nothing we contribute to it oh, of, except for the sin that we needed to be saved from in the first place. Listen, there is nothing experiential that happens when we are converted, when we are saved. But I would also say this, when each one of us was saved and filled with Holy Spirit at the same time, we knew it. We knew that our life had gone through a transformation. We knew that our hearts had been changed. I've learned, though, that this is why many Pentecostals believe that you can lose your salvation. They believe this because they would rather question the authenticity of the Holy Spirit than they would question their methods to be saved in the first place. This also completely goes against the truth of salvation that it is the work of God alone. But I love what the Bible tells us. It says that the spirit is like the wind. Goes where he wills. Let's jump to Acts 2 and 9. Acts 2 9. Parthians and Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phygra, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belong, belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said they were filled with new wine. The reason this is so essential for us to get is because it carries tremendous weight for what we knew and know about the truth of Scripture. 
The very event that we are reading here is not something we can just guess about, but it was actually the fulfillment of prophecy in Isaiah. In Isaiah 11 and 10, he says, In that day, the root of Jesse being Jesus, who shall stand as a signal for for the peoples of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. This was the word that came from Isaiah. God was sending his son, Jesus, the root of Jesse, having come through the lineage of David, and he would use him to bring the people together in a way that they had never been brought together. How was he going to do that? He was unifying us all in and through and with the Holy Spirit. When we reduce this text to superficialities about involved, forced babbling, then we miss what God is actually showing us in the text in its right and proper context. When we see the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation, Jesus welcomes his perfect, unblemished, and blameless bride into sup with him in that marriage supper. The representation of that is all the nations of the earth having been brought together in unity and there are people as the Bible tells us in in scripture from every tribe and he has unified us all as one people that is what we saw at Pentecost is that it doesn't matter what your language is what your color is what your creed is we have been brought together bonded together by the Holy Spirit spirit gone for us and this is the foreshadowing of eternity we are giving a foreshadowing of what eternity will be like where we are no longer separated by our differences but we are unified through Jesus Christ as one people finally in Revelation 79 after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is what the Pentecost event foreshadow for all of us and for any of us to try to replicate or attempt to recreate it for the sake of continuing unfounded traditions cheapens what we are being shown here. We who believe will all share in our eternal destination and will reside with God. That is our eternal finish line. And it awaits all of us. Like the song says, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. I think if we knew what glorious eternity awaits us, then we wouldn't make any attempt to recreate that here on earth. That is what we are shown in this text. There will come a day where we will be unified beyond our color, beyond our creed, beyond even our dialect, 
and Pentecost was the evidence of the coming Holy Spirit, but it was just our glimpse of forever. And so what I want you to see is that, yes, we have gotten things wrong in the history of of our belief system, in the history of the church. But when we see, hear, and know the truth, we are called to respond to that truth. Listen, the Bible is true. And anything, any other doctrine that is preached that is a verse to that truth is heresy. It is heresy. And so we seek to be clear and faithful to the biblical text. And the last thing we want to do is undermining the sanctifying, transforming work of the Holy Spirit when he indwells all of us. And as he saves us and saves us and saves us and sanctifies us more and more. One of the big things that William Seymour never addressed was that he claimed to be a Christian minister. But he also claimed that the evidence of your Christianity was that you spoke in tongues. One big problem that arose in his teaching was that according to his own belief system he was disqualified from even being a Christian in the first place. People, I think when we take time and read this word not just what a person wants to believe about it but what the word of God actually says we are brought such truth such clarity and such freedom. And I pray that if you have watched this today and if maybe you have been subjected to some of these teachers or even have held some of these beliefs that you have been freed and brought great clarity today in knowing what Scripture actually said when it was written in its proper context and that we do not undermine the work of the Holy Spirit but that we have clarity on who He is and what He does and his transformative work in our lives. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the word. Um, God, we thank you for giving us so much insight on the Holy Spirit, what that means for us, what that means for the people we witness to, God. We just pray that, you know, we will not be caught up in so many of the false narratives about the Holy Spirit, the false teachings that are out there, but that we will have the full assurance of our faith and that it is nothing outside of these 66 books. You know, we do not exceed what is written in the book. God, there are lots of people who have been um, misguided, who have misinterpreted, and we just pray that this will go out and that it will bring clarity to every one of those hearts. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.